When discussing consensus mechanisms for different cryptocurrencies, one issue that often causes arguments is a lack of understanding and definition of the security model that they provide for the historical data in the ledger. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I'm Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We've got another blast from the past today, uh, but this is uh, this is another great one from Jameson Lop that uh, is basically forever applicable because it's a it's a deep dive. It's a it's a breakdown of the Bitcoin security model. And I think it's interesting just to kind of think about it from the context of 2016 when this was written, and then now how much different the hash and mining landscape is. Um, but just to be able to kind of take this model and you know do the same sort of math and the same sort of, uh, especially it's it's funny too how much this was in 2016, so this was before the block size war. And there are two things in this that he basically lays out that kind of give you the full outcome of the block size war before the block size war happened is one reason why the blocks block size war happened. And then another reason as to why the full nodes, why the user activated soft fork won during the during the uh, during the block size war. But it, obviously, it's not really in that context. He just kind of lays out some important structural elements of the security and the power dynamics in Bitcoin. And it's like you take that to their logical conclusion and you have the and you have the outcome of the block size war, which I thought was just kind of fascinating. You know, I've always contended that the big blockers, the reason that the hard fork side lost wasn't just because they had the wrong path thinking ahead, but because they didn't understand Bitcoin as it was today. And maybe if they did understand those critical elements, those kind of deeper elements of Bitcoin, they could have won the block size war in some form or fashion, or at least they could have not lost so miserably. But you can also say they would have chosen a different path and they, they wouldn't have had the mindset that they did. But anyway, we'll get into that a little bit in the guy's take. Let's go ahead and hit the article um, and we'll thank our sponsors real quick before we do. This show is brought to you by the Fold debit card and app. This is literally the center of all of the things that I do in banking now. Every All of my fiat goes through Fold, and I just get sats back on freaking everything. Uh, I use the gift cards whenever they're available. I use the debit card to get 1% back on everything, and I get spins constantly, so I just get free sats. I know for some of you it's not in your jurisdiction, but if it is available to you, you've really got to check out Fold. Bitcoinaudible.com slash Fold. You can actually get 100,000 free sats right now. And then you can put those sats into your cold card hardware wallet, which you can get 9% off of with code Bitcoin Audible. I have recently learned, thanks to UTXO over at Nodeless, uh, a very disheartening news that a lot of you, even the Bitcoin only ers still have your Bitcoin on Coinbase or Binance. And I'm not kidding. This like literally worries me. Please get a cold card, get a solid hardware wallet, get a tap signer. They're, they're really cheap. 
none of this, this, so much of this is easy and affordable for securing your life savings. And it certainly doesn't hurt that you get 9% off with code Bitcoin Audible. Get a cold card and withdraw, please. And lastly, you want to accept Bitcoin and Lightning in your online store and you want zero, none of the headache. That is why Nodeless exists. Nodeless.io slash guy is my special link. No KYC, no long-term commitments, no subscriptions, just a dirt simple 1% fee and your coins get sent straight to you. Avoid the headaches and don't pay for what you don't use. Go with nodeless.io slash guy. All right, with that, let's get into today's read. And it's titled, Bitcoin's Security Model, A Deep Dive, by Jameson Lopp. When discussing consensus mechanisms for different cryptocurrencies, one issue that often causes arguments is a lack of understanding and definition of the security model that they provide for the historical data in the ledger. While each consensus model aims to prevent various theoretical attacks, it's important to understand the goals for the model. Every security model has two main parts, assumptions and guarantees. If the assumptions used as inputs hold true, then so should the guarantees that are output by the model. Let's dig into the security model that appears to be offered to Bitcoin users who run a full node. In Search of Truth Quote, One of Bitcoin's strengths, the most important in my opinion even, is the low degree of trust you need in others. Peter Wella The goal of distributed ledgers is to provide an ordered history of events, because in distributed systems you can't simply trust a timestamp. When a new participant on a blockchain-based network joins, they download any available blocks and consider every valid series of blocks that they see, starting from a hard-coded Genesis block. One of the greatest assumptions made by Bitcoin's security model is that the majority of miners are honest, that they are working to secure the blockchain rather than attempting to undermine it. In practice, this has held true throughout Bitcoin's history due to miner incentives, though some question if it will continue to hold true in the future. Given this assumption, full node operators can be completely sure of several facts. Nobody has inflated the money supply except for miners, and only according to a well-defined schedule. Nobody ever spent money without having the appropriate private keys. Nobody ever spent the same money twice. Full node operators can be reasonably sure of several other things. There is a strong guarantee that... Any block in the chain was created within approximately two hours of the block's timestamp, and they are syncing the true blockchain history. At a more technical level, this requires a multitude of checks. All blocks follow the consensus rules. Each block is chained to a parent block. Each block met its difficulty target and has sufficient proof of work. Block timestamps fall in a window relative to recent blocks. The Merkle root matches the block's transactions. No blocks were larger than the allowed maximum size. Each block's first and only first transaction is a Coinbase transaction. Coinbase outputs don't pay more than the appropriate block reward. No blocks contained more than the allowed signature operations. All transactions followed the consensus rules. Input and output values are sane. Transactions only spend unspent outputs. All inputs being spent have valid signatures. 
no Coinbase transaction outputs were spent within 100 blocks of their creation. No transactions spend inputs with a lock time before the block in which they are confirmed. And many other rules that would take too long to cover here. Thermodynamic security. Once a transaction is confirmed in a block, it can't be reversed without someone expending a minimum amount of energy to rewrite the chain. As long as no attacker holds more than 50% of the network's computational power, and honest nodes can communicate quickly, the probability of a transaction being reversed decreases exponentially with the number of confirmations it has received. There are other attacks, such as selfish mining, that can reduce this power requirement, though they appear to be difficult to perpetuate. Looking at the current cumulative work performed by Bitcoin miners, it would take nearly 10 to the 26 hashes to build an alternative blockchain from Genesis with greater cumulative proof of work that full nodes would consider to be the, quote, true chain. To crunch some numbers on the cost involved in such an attack, an Antminer S9 runs at 0.1 joules per gigahash, or 10 to the 9 hashes. 10 to the 26 hashes times 0.1 joules divided by 10 to the 9 hashes equals 10 to the 15th joules. 10 to the 15 joules equals 2,777,777,778 kilowatt hours, times at roughly 10 cent per kilowatt hour equals 277,777,778 dollars worth of electricity to rewrite the entire blockchain. Whereas at time of writing, a single block must hit a difficulty target of 253,618,246,641, which multiply this by 2 to the 48, divided by 65,535, equals 1.09 times 10 to the 21 hashes. Calculate again for the joules, and you get 30,278 kilowatt hours, times again the 10 cent per kilowatt hour, which gives us about $3,028 worth of electricity per block. This is why we can state that Bitcoin is provably thermodynamically secure. There are a few variables that you can tweak in the above calculation to decrease the cost, but we can be sure that it will require many millions of dollars worth of electricity alone in order to rewrite the entire blockchain. However, an attacker with this much hash power would at worst be able to reverse transactions back to 2014. We'll delve into the reason for this shortly. Also note that this doesn't take into account the costs required to obtain and operate sufficient mining equipment to carry out such an attack. Sybil Resistance Because the Bitcoin protocol considers the true chain to be the one with the most cumulative proof of work, not the longest chain, as is often incorrectly stated, the result is that a new peer joining the network only needs to connect to a single honest peer in order to find the true chain. This is also known as Sybil resistance, which means that it's not possible for someone to launch an attack against a node by creating many dishonest peers that feed it false information. Pictured here is a near worst case scenario in which your node is being massively Sybil attacked but still has a single connection with an honest node that is connected to the true Bitcoin network. As long as a single honest peer is passing the true blockchain data to your full node, 
it will be quite clear that any Sybil attackers are attempting to deceive you, and your node will ignore them. Real-time consensus The Bitcoin protocol creates a number of other interesting attributes with regard to maintaining a network-wide consensus once your node is at the tip of the blockchain. The authors of Research Perspectives and Challenges for Bitcoin and Cryptocurrencies note the following properties that are important to the stability of a cryptocurrency. Eventual consensus. At any time, all compliant nodes agree upon a prefix of what will become the eventual true blockchain. Exponential convergence. The probability of a fork of depth n is O times 2 minus n. This gives users high confidence that a simple K confirmations rule will ensure their transactions are settled permanently. Liveness. New blocks will continue to be added and valid transactions with appropriate fees will be included in the blockchain within a reasonable amount of time. Correctness. All blocks in the chain with the most cumulative proof of work will only include valid transactions. Fairness. A miner with X percent of the network's total computational power will mine approximately X percent of blocks. The authors of the paper note that Bitcoin appears to have these properties, at least under the assumption that the majority of miners are remaining honest, which is what the block rewards along with proof of work attempt to incentivize. There are many other algorithms that can be used to maintain consensus in distributed systems, such as proof of stake, proof of coin age, proof of deposit, proof of burn, proof of activity, proof of elapsed time, federated consensus, and practical Byzantine fault tolerance. These create different security models, the most obvious difference from proof of work being that each of the alternative systems consensus is driven at the expense of internal resources, coins or reputation, rather than external resources, electricity. This creates a very different set of incentives for, and trust in, validators on the network, which drastically changes the security model. Security Model Misunderstandings A common mistaken assumption is that there is a well-defined security model for Bitcoin. In reality, the Bitcoin protocol was and is being built without a formally defined specification or security model. The best that we can do is to study the incentives and behavior of actors within the system in order to better understand and attempt to describe it. That said, there are a few properties of the Bitcoin protocol that are often analyzed incorrectly. Some blockchains have suffered badly enough from attacks that developers add centrally broadcasted signed checkpoints into the node software, essentially saying that block X has been validated by the developers as being the correct historical chain. This is a point of extreme centralization. It's worth noting that Bitcoin has 13 hard-coded checkpoints, but they do not change the security model in the way that broadcasted checkpoints do. The last checkpoint was added to Bitcoin Core 0.9.3 and is at block height 295,000, which was created on April 9th, 2014. This block had a difficulty of 6,119,726,089, which would require approximately, using our equation again to divide by the blocks, find the total hashes, and then convert those into kilowatt hours, we get $73 worth of electricity to generate each block. Thus, if a Sybil attacker completely surrounded a new node that was sinking from scratch, 
it could create some short blockchains at low heights at almost no cost, but only up to the various checkpointed blocks. If it partitioned a node off the network that had synced past block 295,000, it would be able to start feeding false blocks at a cost of $73 per block, at least until it hit a difficulty readjustment. However, the further along the victim node had synced, the greater the cost would be for the attacker to create a chain with more cumulative work. Both Greg Maxwell and Peter Wella have stated that they hope to someday completely remove checkpoints. Bitcoin Core lead maintainer Vladimir Von Delan noted that checkpoints are a constant source of confusion to people who seek to understand Bitcoin's security model. An argument could be made that this means a full node is, quote, trusting the core devs regarding the validity of the blockchain history up until April 9, 2014. But the node still checks the Merkle hashes in each block's header, meaning that the soundness of the transaction history is still secured by proof of work. These old checkpoints enable a performance increase, skipping signature verification when initially syncing the historical blockchain, though the introduction of LibSecP256K1 has made the performance difference less significant. Checkpoints remain in place for three purposes. One, to prevent nodes from having their memory filled up with valid but low proof-of-work block headers. Two, skipping signatures in earlier blocks, a performance improvement. And three, to estimate syncing progress. While this article was being written, Greg Maxwell proposed replacing checkpoints with a cumulative work check instead. Once a node has a chain that contains more than 5.4 times 10 to the 24 hashes performed, chains with less cumulative work would be rejected. This coincides with the amount of work performed up to approximately block 320,000 in September 2014, at which point individual blocks were of difficulty around 27 billion. Using our equation again to break it down into individual blocks, then the number of hashes, the joules, and the kilowatt hours, we get $322 worth of electricity per block. Thus, with this proposed change, if a Sybil attacker completely surrounded a new node that was sinking from scratch, it would be able to start feeding false blocks starting at any block after Genesis for basically no cost. If a Sybil attacker completely surrounded a node that synced past block roughly 320,000, it could start feeding a false chain from that point at a cost of $322 per block. In short, either check for securing a node's initial sync is relatively inexpensive to attack if an entity can gain complete control of your node's internet connection. If they can't, then the node will easily dismiss the attacker's blocks. On a related note, every blockchain system has its Genesis block hard-coded into the node software. You could argue that there is a social contract to the quote, shared history that is the ledger. Once a block is old enough, there is an understanding amongst everyone in the network that it will never be reverted. As such, when developers take a very old block and create a checkpoint out of it, it is done more so as an agreed-upon sanity check rather than as a dictation of history. In addition to checkpoints, there's also the matter of how a node bootstraps itself. The current process for Bitcoin nodes is to check to see if it has a local database of peers it has previously learned about. If not, then it will query a set of, quote, DNS seeds that are hard-coded into the software. These seeds maintain a list of well-connected Bitcoin nodes that they return to your node. As we can see from the code, Bitcoin Core 0.13 
currently uses DNS seeds run by Peter Wella, Matt Corallo, Luke Dasher, Christian Decker, Jeff Garzik, and Jonas Schnelli. Anyone can run a DNS seed by using Peter Wella's Bitcoin Seeder software or Matt Corallo's software. Though in order for it to be used by new nodes, you'd have to convince the developers of one of the full node implementations to add your DNS seed host to their software. It may once again seem like a point of extreme centralization that the bootstrapping process for a new node is reliant upon a mere six DNS seeds. Recall that Bitcoin's security model only requires that you connect to a single honest peer in order to be able to withstand Sybil attacks. As such, a new node only needs to be able to connect to a single DNS seed that isn't compromised and returns IP addresses of honest nodes. However, there is a fallback if for some reason all of the DNS seeds are unreachable. A hard-coded list of reliable node IP addresses that gets updated for each release. The security model for these various initialization parameters is not that the full node operator is trusting X DNS seeds or Y core developers to feed them honest data, but rather that at least one out of X DNS seeds is not compromised, or one out of Y core developers is honest about reviewing the validity of hard-coded peer changes. Nothing is perfectly secure. At an even deeper level, when you run a full node, you are probably trusting the hardware and software you are running to a certain extent. There are methods to verify the software by checking the signatures of your binary against those of Vanderlaan, but it's unlikely that many people bother to go through this process. As for trustworthy hardware, that's a tough problem. The closest you'll probably come to a secure hardware solution is something like ORWL, which is guaranteed to self-destruct if anyone attempts to tamper with it. However, given that hardware architectures for CPUs, RAM, and other important hardware tend to be proprietary, you can never be 100% sure that they aren't compromised. Bitcoin's Balance of Power The waters become even murkier when you begin to investigate the relationship between different participants in the system. The purpose of running a full node is to protect your financial sovereignty. This generally means that by installing and running a specific version of software, you are entering into an agreement that you will abide by the rules of that software and that everyone else using the network must also abide by them. As such, if people want to change the rules in such a way that they are not backwards compatible, you must explicitly agree to the rule change by running a new version of the software. On the other hand, backwards compatible rule changes can be implemented and enforced without your consent. A highly simplified description of the power dynamics in Bitcoin. A tweet by Jameson Lopp. Three branches of BTC governance. Full nodes can veto miners and devs. Miners can veto the devs. And the devs can help others bypass some vetoes. It's important to note that full node software does not automatically update itself. And this is by design. Automatic updates would greatly shift the balance of power to developers, enabling them to force rule changes upon nodes and miners without their permission. Unfortunately, while a rule change may be technically backwards compatible, we have come to learn over the years that sufficiently creative soft forks can actually implement changes that are clearly outside the intent of the previous version of rules. Vitalik Buterin demonstrated this with a description of a way to soft fork Bitcoin's block time from 10 minutes to 2 minutes, which would of course also speed up the emission schedule of new Bitcoins. There is one trump card that full nodes have in order to fight back against unwanted soft forks, 
is to hard fork away from the miners who implement the soft fork. This is difficult to perform, by design, and raises a lot of questions about measuring consensus and finding the economically important nodes. Technically, it could be done by changing the miner algorithm from double SHA-256 to a different hash function, thereby rendering all SHA-256 ASICs useless for mining bitcoins. It's for this reason that node operators should remain vigilant in changes in the ecosystem and remind miners that they can be replaced if they exceed their authority. A lot of game theory is involved in discussing miner operations and their threat to Bitcoin's security, and I speculated as to how the mining ecosystem may change in a previous article. While Bitcoin mining is more centralized than most of us would like, it still seems to work well because Bitcoin miners have a lot of capital invested. They can't risk destroying their investment by acting maliciously in a system where everyone is watching. SPV Security A lot of Bitcoin users employ a lightweight client to access the network rather than a full node, since it requires far fewer resources while still providing strong security. A client employing Simplified Payment Verification, or SPV, downloads a complete copy of the headers for all blocks in the entire chain. This means that the download and storage requirements scale linearly with the amount of time since Bitcoin was invented. This is described in Section 8 of the Bitcoin White Paper. Satoshi wrote that an SPV client, quote, can't check the transaction for himself, but by linking it to a place in the chain, he can see that a network node has accepted it, and blocks added after it further confirm the network has accepted it. SPV assumes that a transaction X blocks deep will be costly to forge. SPV seems to offer similar guarantees as full node security, but with an additional assumption that any block with a valid header and proof of work always contains valid transactions. Because SPV clients don't check all of the consensus rules noted in the first section of this article, they are making the assumption that the consensus rules are being checked by the nodes from which they request transactions. An additional but minor security difference involves peers withholding information from you. When you're running a full node, peers can withhold unconfirmed transactions and blocks from you. However, once you receive a block from any peer, it's not possible for anyone to withhold the transactions in that block from you. On the flip side, it is possible for a peer to give a block header to an SPV client and then withhold information about transactions in that block. SPV clients can make a query to learn information about transactions affecting a certain address, and while it would be costly for peers to lie to them about the existence of fake confirmed transactions, it would require mining a block with sufficient proof of work, they could lie by omission, claim that there were no results for the Bloom filter you used to query for transactions. It's also worth noting that SPV is terribly broken from a privacy standpoint due to flaws with Bloom filters. Bitcoin J has an excellent write-up of the SPV security model. Regarding unconfirmed transactions, they note, In SPV mode, the only reason you have to believe the transaction is valid is the fact that the nodes you connected to relayed the transaction. If an attacker could ensure you were connected to his nodes, this would mean they could feed you a transaction that was completely invalid, spent non-existing money, and it would still be accepted as if it was valid. SPV security is probably good enough for the average user though it could be improved upon with SPV fraud proofs. There has been some discussion of this concept, but no implemented proposals for building them into the protocol. There's no place like 127.0.0.1. 
If you aren't running a full node and actually using it to validate transactions, then you're outsourcing at least some level of trust to third parties, resulting in a different security model for your usage of Bitcoin. Note that this need not necessitate that all users and businesses build their software directly on top of Bitcoin Core's RPC API. Some alternative infrastructure configurations might include, but are not limited to, 1. Using a mobile wallet such as Bitcoin Wallet for Android, Green Address, or Stash that enables you to configure the wallet to only query your own full node. 2. Building apps on top of SPV node libraries such as Bitcoin J and configuring them to only connect to full nodes that you operate. In Bitcoin J, this can be accomplished by defining your own seed peers that you pass to your peer group during initialization. With Libitcoin, you can define a network connection to a specific node using this example. 3. Building a proxy server that is compatible with Bitcoin Core's JSON RPC API that sends some calls to third-party services but also automatically verifies the data they return by making calls to a local full node. For example, see BitGo's BitGoD software. This hybrid model can give you the best of both worlds. You can leverage advanced features offered by third parties while still retaining your financial sovereignty. Full Nodes for Freedom It's clear that running your own full node offers superior security with the fewest required assumptions. Given that you can build a computer capable of running a reliable full node for only a few hundred dollars, do the math and determine if securing your financial sovereignty is worth the price. I have gotten a quarter of a Bitcoin. A quarter of a Bitcoin. Or at least I'm not very far from a quarter of a Bitcoin. Just by using Fold. Now, I've gotten lucky on a few spins and, you know, I got a 100% back on, you know, a, a few hundred dollar uh, ticket purchase and a couple that just got me like 50,000 and 100,000 sats just randomly on a spin. But largely, this is just from making Fold the only debit card and the only banking service that I actually really use. I still have my old bank account, but all I just, just, just because I have one bill that comes out of it. Outside of that, everything, all my business expenses, everything for our day-to-day, my wife has it plugged into her Apple Pay so that she can just pay with the Fold card. Every single time we have the opportunity to use a gift card, if we're doing DoorDash or Uber Eats or we're Ubering somewhere or uh, we're traveling and we want tickets or a hotel, anything that we can do. Oh, Amazon, obviously, Amazon hasn't seen a debit card, has not charged a debit card of mine in like two years. So I want to stress that again. I've gotten almost a quarter of a Bitcoin and I haven't purchased that quarter of a Bitcoin. I have gotten that simply from rewards for using the Fold card for, I don't know, what, three years now? Like imagine how much, if you were just doing that along with your normal stack, how much faster you could get to being a whole coiner. And this is totally passive. I, I can't think of an easier way to get sats, to stack sats, than to just get paid for using fiat. And you can get 100,000 sats for free just for using my link. Go to bitcoinaudible.com fold. Seriously, check it out. All right, so this security deep dive, one of, the, one of the things I really love about this is understanding the difference between a 
inter- well, granted he didn't actually uh, stress this a lot because m- mostly he was just focused on Bitcoin rather than the alternative proof of stake, proof, proof of coin age, blah, blah, blah. But uh, he did hit on the idea that most of the proofs of blah result or rely on internal data of the system in order to provide some set of assurances. Whereas Bitcoin is unique specifically because it is the first digital ledger and still, even in the whole slew of all the other, oh, I've got a better consensus algorithm systems because they they believe that they found a way to do this without a genuine external cost. Bitcoin is the only one that actually has a provable external cost. Electricity. Proof of work is proof of energy expended. Obviously, we've read tons of different pieces and, you know, there's a, there's, I think it's Hugo Huynh, if I'm not mistaken, who has the Anatomy of Proof of Work series. I think it's like two or three pieces. Um, we haven't covered that in a really long time, but that's such a phenomenal series. I'll, uh, I'll see if I can remember to Anatomy of Proof of Work. Um, definitely going to have that one in the show notes. So if you have not read that series, I'll see if I can find uh, all of the pieces on that because it's just, it's fascinating just thinking about proof of work as the bridge, as the first and only thing that we really have as a provable bridge between real world cost and digital and the digital world, which is why digital scarcity and the digital guarantee, the assurance of the, the thermodynamic security of the ledger is actually something that you can prove is something that isn't just esoteric or self-referential. It is genuine. You can literally just look at the hash. You can count the hashes and you can calculate how much, how much incredible amounts of energy and capital it would take to then reverse or undo, make any changes to the historical ledger of Bitcoin. And it's also important to remember that this was way back in 2016 that this was written. So when he was doing these calculations, like he used S9 as the, the S9, which is obviously, uh, I mean, uh, granted, some people still use them as heaters, myself included, but they are not profitable miners at all anymore. They are a generation or two back. Granted, they are the longest running still on the network uh, machines that I think of anything else on the network. The S9 was a was kind of like the bread and butter of hashing for a very, very long time. It's actually kind of amazing to see because they've come down in price so much to see them repurposed for things like heaters. You know, Crypto Cloaks has the printed heater case for the S9 with the uh, where you can replace the fan with one of those. I can't remember the brand. It's it's some like Silent Night or Ninja or some something like that. But it's a uh, it's a brand of fan that's is specifically about being as quiet as possible and and literally use it as a heater. You can plug it into a normal outlet, whereas something like the M30s, the S19s, all the all the more expensive and updated ASICs all require basically like a 220 plug and more dedicated energy setup, which really kind of sucks. Um, and actually, we're going to talk to somebody about exactly this on the show because... Um, he is trying to do his part and building some really fascinating little kind of DIY tools to kind of fix this problem is that the entire mining industry has been focused on 
industrial scale mining. So the amount of tweaking and sort of custom setup you have to have in order to get these things to work in a house or to get these to work on a really small scale with the individual is kind of disappointing. You know, if we if we really care about the decentralization of mining, then we should make mining is as accessible as possible. There should be miners all over the place that just plug into a normal outlet. And my personal and mostly it's just because this is the route that I took and I feel like it's been incredibly successful. Granted, it's summer, so I don't I don't really get to experiment with it right now and see numbers. And I'll have to go through a whole nother season to kind of see the the genuine rates, the, the genuine payouts versus costs. But using the miners to heat your house as as home heating, the the degree of cost savings from a couple of different avenues make it really, really hard for that not to be a really good, at least midterm investment. Like maybe in the long term, it pays you less or excuse me, it doesn't pay you less. It uh, costs more from purely the standpoint of heat. But the thing is, is if you're looking at like a five to 10 year timeline, because I mean, the just the cost of installing or getting the machine is a whole lot less than a heating unit in a home. So it essentially could lose money. It could be less efficient for a pretty long span of time and still not be a net loss. But the thing is, is you're getting Bitcoin through that whole time. So if you're looking at like a five-year timeline and Bitcoin goes up massively in that and you manage to avoid what was nothing but a naked cost for heat, just a sunk cost, and you actually manage to stack Bitcoin during that time, and then that Bitcoin went up 2x, 3x, 5x in price? I don't know. It just seems like a no-brainer in for a lot of different reasons. But anyway, that's a different episode, different discussion. Uh, but one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of the show, and I wanted to bring up because I just thought while I was reading through this piece, I was like, this is so great because this is written in 2016, right? This is a year before the block size war just was in full-on frontline attack mode and everybody was forking and everybody was fighting and everybody was trying to get you know the user activated soft fork and their clients and the minor new york agreement and everything but what's funny is if they had read and understood jameson lop's piece there are actually a couple of things that kind of explain the whole dynamic and why the user activated soft fork won so first, the little piece that stuck out to me that I thought was funny in, in the sense that it explains the entire war. It explains the entire difference in perspective between the big blockers and the small blockers. And this was just kind of a, it's funny, this is just kind of an afterthought and he doesn't really delve into this at all because obviously he's talking about more of the thermodynamic security of this system and the assurances that the full node gives and how the consensus model works. Whereas... He does touch on something that's critically important and is essentially one of the foundations for why blocks must remain small. So the quote is, as long as no attacker holds more than 50% of the network's computational power and honest nodes can communicate quickly, the probability of a transaction being reversed decreases exponentially with the number of confirmations it has received, end quote. It's funny, right there, the entire security model depends on the fact 
that honest nodes can communicate quickly, can reach consensus, and find themselves at the current latest state as fast as possible. And there's a there's a website, I can't remember, it's, it might be Bitnodes, or I don't know, a lot of the visualizers have changed over the years, and some of them have gone down. Some of my favorite ones, actually, are no longer live, which is really sad. Um, but uh, there was a visualizer, at least at some point, it's probably been four or five years ago since I've thought about it or gone back to it, but that will show when a new block propagates, it literally shows it pinging through the network, like how fast, and this is a global visualizer, by the way, so it will literally show it, which I, it, there's, a, there's a degree of connectivity, I don't know exactly how it works, that it can have, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of leeway in how it determines whether or not a node has it or how it's pinging or trying to get as many connections as possible. Um, but it's fascinating just because it shows like it's, it's crazy. Like a new block lands somewhere and you see that little dot light up and then it's just like, and then it's just like in a matter of just a few seconds, something like 98% of the network has it. That bandwidth bottleneck. If, if that increases, Greg Maxwell had a uh, great way of explaining it, probably right around this era too, because this is when I was understanding this, because originally I thought Bitcoin Unlimited was a really cool idea. Um, it, it seemed to, uh, the idea of increasing the block size at the relative rate of Moore's Law um, every year or two years, I can't remember exactly how it was, but that, that was one of the big problems is there was no strong consensus on what the alternative block size path would be. And uh, the reason, there was always like the Bitcoin Classic and then uh, Bitcoin uh, Segwit2x and all of these things that just wanted to like nominally increase the block size. And it seemed stupid to make such an important and drastic change and then to have to just do it again. So the idea of having a gradual increasing change seemed somehow more elegant to me and but I did not fully understand I was not I did not grasp a lot of the concepts at the time I was I mean the block size war it's funny how well Jameson Lopp understood some of these main principles even back then uh, and and with the de the relative degree of nuance that he did just because not only is this still perfectly relevant but it has these kind of critical pieces of the block size war puzzle that if you understood it, you'd have known what made the most sense going forward and why there was such an enormous risk in making that change. And that it's not just a simple matter of can we download the next play? Like, is it still reasonable to have a hard drive big enough to handle the handle the next block or the slightly larger block size? Because it's a compounding inefficiency for every additional piece of data and i think inscriptions and the ordinal disaster is probably a pretty good example as to why but it's not just about can we store the block it's do we have the bandwidth to download it the computational power to verify all the signatures which the bigger the signatures get and the bigger the blocks get the worse the computational problem is, but then do you have the bandwidth to upload it to the next node after you've verified it? And only after that does worrying about whether or not you can store it indefinitely come into play. 
then you've got tons of just how to query that amount of data quickly because you need to be able to do that in order to just check the transaction. So if you've got two terabytes of blocks and God knows what the UTXO set size is and all of these things in order to query, you've got to hold this sort of stuff in RAM. You have to be able to just talk, like just sort through the database. I mean, suffice to say, it's just, it, it's a extremely multifaceted problem. And you have to have something that doesn't just keep up with normal technology for people who just buy the typical device or have a decent consumer computer. The whole point of Bitcoin is to be censorship resistant, is to be provably uh, reliable in the face of an attack, in the face of the Great Firewall of China, is that it can actually operate over Tor, that it can operate over a satellite network, that not, not that it can keep up with normal average bandwidth for the modern, you know, soft economy, but that it can live and stay in consensus under authoritarian regimes, under internet crackdowns, that it survives and gets through every crack in the world's networks so that the same Bitcoin is accessible by everyone in the world, no matter who says it should not be accessible. That's a very, very different challenge than simply, can you buy a consumer piece of hardware and run a node? And then the other thing that he does, and this is actually from his tweet on October 12th, 2016, that says there are three branches of Bitcoin, quote, governance. Full nodes can veto miners and devs. The miners can veto the devs. And the devs can help others bypass some vetoes. But there it is right there. Full nodes can veto the miners and the developers. Segwit2x was an attempt to get, I mean, they had like 90% of the miners signed onto this. Or 90% of the hash rate. And pretty much all of the major exchanges and the users just like just were like, nah, the full nodes can veto the miners and the developers because the full nodes run the network. And having a whole bunch of fake Sybil nodes, and this is this is one of those things that you know you can't Sybil a proof of work, right? But you can Sybil the nodes. But the thing about the Sybil attack is that you can't Sybil the node into thinking something is accurate that is not. Thinking something that is the true chain is not. If it does not have valid transactions, if it does not have valid rules, if it does not have valid proof of work, everything has to be valid. It all has to follow the rules because the full node confirms and validates the entire set of consensus rules. So all it has to do is have one avenue, a single connection, a single stream of data from anywhere Another reason why that stream of data ought to be very, very small and easy to sneak through anywhere. Tor, satellite, cell phone, anything, radio waves. If it has any access whatsoever to the, more, to the most cumulative proof-of-work chain, then all that, civil, all that work to set up fake nodes, to mine fake blocks, and try to civil attack somebody's connection is not. Means jack shit. So I just thought it was funny. So it was funny that I was reading this and it struck me that this was 2016. This was before the block size war. And if uh, any big blockers had read this very, very carefully, um, they would have understood the small blocker perspective and they would have known why the user activated soft fork was, was basically the end of their story. 
if the nodes don't want it, the network's not going to do it. But anyway, this was a this was just a great piece all around. Um, and this will also be available on the website. So he's actually got a crap ton of links here. Um, I was going to try to put a couple of them in the in the show notes because there's actually a couple of good links. Like one of the things that I tend to do with uh, basically all the reads, but with some of these uh, more kind of deep dives in particular, it's it's great. It's just a great thing, uh, a great resource or habit. I don't know what you want to call it, a practice to just go through and click on links like just when he has some examples of something and he like writes a sentence or two about it but then he's got a link to it go read that article go like kind of dig into it or watch that video or something the amount of depth that you can get with especially with somebody like jameson who always just has a plethora of links like if you want to do a deep dive there's a deep dive inside this deep dive of just link after link after link for things that you can go i mean i probably only went to like six or seven out of i don't know 40 or something in this article who knows um but there's just a ton more to explore if you just kind of want to go down this rabbit hole and explore a lot more and of course obviously jameson lop's blog is is a gold mine of stuff um but the audio will also be on this on the article page uh soon i'll be shooting him i'm going to cut it out just the just the read and send it to him so he'll have it on the actual website too if you ever want to listen to it again or you want to go there and listen to it while you're kind of exploring some of these other links. That's kind of a fun, I guess, kind of geeky thing that I do. It's funny, I used to not be able to listen to myself, but now it doesn't, it doesn't register anymore. Like I don't, I don't think about it as, I don't know, I've actually listened to a lot of my pieces over. I don't know when that happened, when that transition happened. I used to hate listening to the show, but I guess after you do this for six, five years, six years, I don't even know now. At some point, it just all goes into the background. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, we will close this one out. A uh, huge thank you to Jameson Lop, as always. A huge thank you to Nodeless and Fold and CoinKite. And it seems like no one took me up on, or at least I haven't seen anybody. I realize I haven't checked Fountain uh, recently. No one took me up on the uh, Nodeless donation page that I will be your first donation to Nodeless if you sign up. The account is free, by the way. You don't have to pay for anything. There's no subscription, anything like that. There's no KYC. You literally just set up, make an account, and then you can get a donation page. So definitely check that out and use my link, uh, bitcoinaudible.com slash Nodeless. And if you did send me a link or you sent me a message on Fountain, that's my bad. I just haven't kept up with it. Don't forget, also, 100,000 sats for free by checking out Fold and 9% off your cold card. With that, guys, thank you so much for listening. I will catch you on the next episode of Bitcoin Audible. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. I don't know anything, but I do know that everything is interesting if you go into it deeply enough. Richard Feynman